is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert's Rules of Order, Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Well, listeners, get excited! Because, oh, wait, did I just even skip saying... I even skipped saying hi to you. I'm so excited about today's guest. Bro, That's okay. How are you? That's okay. I'm fine, Allison. How are you? Okay, great. All right. So get excited because the one and only David Gardner, co-founder and chief rule breaker of The Motley Fool, will be joining us for the next couple episodes to share his guiding principles for investing success. And this week, we'll cover his six traits of a rule breaker stock. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, this past Saturday was the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. And like the previous year, it was very different. Not a public gathering, but this year it was in L.A. So that Warren Buffett could do it with his partner, Charlie Munger. Munger, being 97 years old, uh, does not travel as much. Buffett, however, is a spry 90, so he was able to make the flight out there. Uh, And so they kick it off. And Buffett pointed out that they met 62 years ago. Uh, and at the time, Munger was building a house, and just a few months before that, Buffett had bought a house. And sixty-two year late, sixty-two years later, they're both in the same houses. Um, and I've never seen Munger's house, but I've seen Buffett's. I kind of walked around the neighborhood when I went to one of the annual meetings. Um, it's definitely a nice house, nice neighborhood. Zillow values it as one point three million dollars. Don't know how accurate that is. Um, uh, and it's the nicest house in this neighborhood, but most of the other houses are like five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars. So he's not slumming it. But it's probably not what most people would expect from one of the richest people in the world. I just think it's one of those interesting things about Warren Buffett. Uh, Buffett and Munger were joined by two other folks, uh, Ajit Jain, who is the vice president of insurance operations, and Greg Abel, who's the vice president of everything but insurance and investments. Uh, And some news that came from the meeting today, a couple of days after the meeting, uh, one of the questions during the meeting was whether there will be a point when Berkshire gets too large to manage. And Charlie Munger replied that Berkshire can have all these different types of uh, businesses because it's uniquely decentralized, um, which only works if you have the right culture. And he added, quote, Greg will keep the culture. Well, some people thought that meant, oh, so we finally identified who's going to take over for Warren Buffett when he can't do the job anymore. CNBC called Warren Buffett on Monday, two days after the meeting, and they confirmed that, yes, it is now official. Greg Abel will take over for Warren Buffett. Uh, at least if uh, Buffett were unable to do the job in the near future. So a lot of people kind of expected that, but it's interesting, especially for me as a Berkshire shareholder, to know officially who's going to take over for Warren Buffett. So Buffett kicked off the meeting with an investing lesson, and it was geared specifically to people who are new to investing. Um, he, He thinks that probably there are more people who just started investing in the past year than probably at any point. And uh, he and Munger took some kind of swipes at Robin Hood, uh, and they wanted to make sure that people knew what investing was really about. So he put on the slide the 20 biggest publicly traded companies in the world as of the end of March. And you probably could guess what these companies are, right? Biggest is Apple. Second is actually uh, uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, but Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet. Uh, most of them are from the United States. Thirteen of them are the United States. A few from China. Uh, there's only one company that I actually had not heard of. I'm curious if you guys know about it. It's uh, I'm not even sure I'm going to be able to pronounce it right. Uh, Kwai Chow Mao Tai. You guys ever heard of it? 
Not familiar, no. Okay, Chinese company. That's actually, on me. That's on me. Yeah. It's, well, it's the largest beverage company in the world, uh, and oh. it's the largest distiller uh, and the most valuable oh. spirit company, even more uh, valuable than Diageo. Anyways, I've never heard of it. But regardless. You get to know this company. <laughs> so here's the question that Buffett asked. Taking a look at these companies, how many of these do you think 30 years from now are going to still, still be among the top 20? And, you know, everyone can come up with their own idea of, of what some of these companies will be, whether, whether they'll still be the biggest. And then he said, well, to get an idea, let's look back 30 or so years, a little bit more than 30, actually. He, he put up a chart or a table of the biggest companies in the world as of 1989. And do you want to take a guess on how many companies that were the biggest in 89 are still among the 20 biggest? Uh, five. I don't know. The answer is zero. Zero. Oh, man. I thought there had to be some. Nope. In fact, not only is it zero, but... Uh, 13 of the top 20 were Japanese companies. The four biggest were Japanese banks. Only, huh. si- only six of them were American companies, and they were Exxon, GE, IBM, AT&T, Philip Morris, and Merck, not known for being great investments these days. In fact, since 1989, the S&P 500 has returned almost 1,400%. Exxon, 400%, and GE, just 270%. And that's just price return, not including dividends. So what were the lessons that Buffett was trying to impart? First of all, it's just not easy to pick stocks. Um, You might think that you know what's going to be the most valuable company 10, 20, 30 years from now, but it's actually very difficult to predict that. He actually pointed out during his presentation that there were more than 2,000 companies that entered the car business at some point in the 1900s. Even companies like DuPont and Maytag and Allstate made cars, which I didn't know about. Uh, But now, of course, there are just a handful of car companies, and some of those have gone through bankruptcies. Um, Obviously, today in this episode and next week as well, we're going to have full co-founder David Garner talk about the criteria he looks for in a promising investment, and he has an outstanding record. But as he'll explain, you have to be prepared for many of your investments to be disappointments, which is why diversification is important, which gets to Buffett's second point, something he emphasizes every year, and that is, for many people, you might as well just go with an S&P 500 index fund. Uh, As he said, the main thing to do is just be aboard the ship. He does express a preference for the S&P 500 index fund. I think a total stock market index fund is a little bit better. It's more diversified. You get mid-cap stocks and small-cap stocks, which historically have better returns. At least that's what I always say. And then I'm like, am I right about this? So I look back at the returns for the oldest total stock market index fund, which is from Vanguard. came out in 1992. I'm like, has it outperformed the S&P 500 index fund? And the answer is yes but not by so much. So if you look back in 1992, if you invested $10,000 in the total stock market index fund, you'd have $174,000 today. In the S&P 500 index fund, you'd have $168,000. So you definitely have a few thousand more. Um, And then thirdly, I think this illustration brings up a question of international diversification. You could look at how things have changed over the last 30 years in one of two ways. Uh, You could look at this as evidence that you don't need international stocks, right? Look what happened to people who invested outside the U.S. Or 
you could look at this and think whoever's on top doesn't stay on top forever. International stocks did great in the 80s. U.S. stocks did great in the 90s. International stocks did better in the first decade of the 2000s. U.S. stocks have done better the last decade. So who knows what's going to happen over the next decade? Buffett didn't really address this. He does express his preference for U.S. stocks, but Berkshire does own some international companies. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, I think it's certainly worth considering having 15%, maybe even as high as 30% of your equity allocation in international stocks. Add that to your favorite stock picks, maybe add in some index funds for good measure, and 30 or more years from now, I think you'll be a much wealthier person. And that, Allison, is what's up. David Gardner, the man, the myth, the co-founder of The Motley Fool, thank you for joining us. It's a delight to join you, and if it's a myth, which I don't think it is, I hope it's not Sisyphean. <laughs> well, Spoken like an English major. Thank you. Well, uh, hopefully this episode won't be like pushing a boulder up a hill. We want to be <laughs> as easy as possible for you. So we have gained a lot of new listeners to the show this year. And so we thought this would be a great opportunity for them to get to know you and get to know your philosophy for investing so that we can help set them up for success early. Um, but before we get started, I wanted to take a brief trip in the Wayback Machine because it was right around this time of year, roughly 27 years ago, that The Motley Fool was being conceived in a backyard shed, maybe six blocks from where I sit here in my living room. Can you take us back, David? Still brings a smile to my face, and sure I can, Allison. Um, I had just quit my one job that I had before The Fool. I was writing for a financial newsletter. Uh, Louis Rukeyser was a personality on PBS. He had the longest running show on PBS for 30 plus years. It was called Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, and I was writing for the financial newsletter. But this isn't blaming Lou or anything. It just wasn't a great job. It was creatively deadening. I would write pieces for the newsletter, and they would come back edited with all the color and humor stripped out. And uh, and I just I, di I didn't like the job. So after only six months, now a married young person, but actually having not sought a job for the first years out of college. I'm now like 25 with no prospects of getting hired by anybody because I couldn't even hold my one job with Lou Rukeyser for a year. And so it was time to start something. And we started The Motley Fool. I pulled the name from Shakespeare, Act 2, Scene 7 of As You Like It, A Fool, A Fool, I See a Fool in the Forest, A Motley Fool. It's a rather nondescript quote, except for the great phrase, The Motley Fool. Motley, of course, being the ragtag garments worn by court jesters of yore. And, uh, and so what a delightful thought it was to think that we could challenge conventional wisdom, as fools have done for centuries, but in this case, focus it on money. So we started the Motley Fool newsletter. It was for money. It was a $48 a year subscription. The only people who'd be willing to pay us $48 a year back then were not our friends and peers who probably didn't trust us and were wondering what the heck we were doing. It was our parents' friends who felt sorry for us and floated the Motley Fool through its first few months. The big moment for us was we pulled an April Fool's joke. Uh, it was April 1st of 1994, Robert and Allison. And the at that time, a lot of people were starting to use this new medium, which wasn't even called the internet yet. The World Wide Web, that phrase wouldn't show up for a couple of years. But they were starting to use it to pump and dump penny stocks. And we saw this especially on Prodigy, for those who remember that ill-fated, long-ago online service. And so we, we, we made up a penny stock. And we got people excited about it through a fake account that was hyping it. Uh, and and we, we pulled a great joke online. And the Wall Street Journal and Forbes picked that up, wrote us up. America Online came to us at the time. They were the big dog online. They said, hey, 
we think whatever your Motley Fool newsletter is, let's let's have a, a lunch and let's talk about maybe opening opening that on our new service, AOL, which was still also in its near infancy. And that was really how the Motley Fool started on August 4th of 1994, our first day on AOL. But yeah, so Allison, our first issue ever was July of 1993. So somewhere in uh, April or May, right around this time of year, we were coming up with these ideas. And I think we were probably late on our first couple deadlines. So it all got pushed into July and that's when we launched. Now, your title is Chief Rule Breaker. Uh, you talk about the traits of a rule breaker stock. You lean into this phrase, rule breaker. Why is that? Uh, I think it's because at the heart of foolishness, if you think about it, it is going against conventional wisdom. And so I think in a lot of ways, rule breaking is consonant with being a capital F fool. In the context of investing, there are lots of ways to break the rules. But in the context of investing, I think I, I inherited a lot of the perceived truths of how to invest. I was taught those as a little kid, but I started to decide some of them aren't actually right. And so I, I started to challenge some of those notions. A lot of people would say, you know, a company has to have earnings before our investment club would ever think about that stock. Or we would never pay over 25 times earnings, a PE, price to earnings ratio of 25. We would never overpay for any company that's overvalued. So a lot of people had those rules in their head. And so I thought, I think the way to win this game, to beat the market, to beat the market averages in a lot of Wall Street's wisdom is, in fact, to subvert these received truths, break the rules, and establish some new ones. So I think we're going to talk some today about what some of those new rules are that, indeed, I've written about uh, for more than 20 years and been guided by and still use the exact same set of traits, I think, that we're going to go over today uh, in our book 23 years ago. Here I am 23 years later using them, and they have beaten the market. I'm really happy to say the song sheet I've been singing off of has not changed, and it has been wildly successful. All right. Well, then let's go through the, the song lyric by lyric then, shall we? So, You sing. Uh, I'll just give the lyrics. You can sing. Broken sing. Yeah, Bro's going to sing for us. Broken um, dance. I'll say that much. Uh, our producer, Rick Engdahl, can sing and play instruments. So if you want to post-produce something that really surprises me, I'm excited about that. But I'll just do the talking part. That sounds fair enough. All right, David, then let's get to it, because you have six traits of a rule breaker stock that you're going to walk us through here today. Thank you. Yes, trait number one is top dog and first mover of an important emerging industry. Now, a lot of those phrases are loaded and worth noting. Top dog, we're talking about the companies that are the leaders. Sticking with our dog analogy, if you're not the lead husky, the view never changes. We've often said uh, that's true in the Iditarod. It's also true in business. I love to find the companies that are the lead huskies because they can take our sled off into crazy interesting places. If, on the other hand, you're just following, it's not nearly as interesting. So the rule breakers are top dogs. They're also usually first movers. They're the companies that dreamed up Jeff Bezos e-commerce before most people would realize it would be a thing. And he was just selling books back in the day and Things have changed since then. A lot of people, by the way, doubted that e-commerce would even work. They said, who's going to give their credit card over the internet? That won't work. And that was some of the skepticism we were greeted with when we picked Amazon at $3.21 a share in 1997, still holding. And then important emerging industry. And yeah, we're looking for the industries that are going to shape the future. And the earlier we can figure that out together, the better. So um, I've often applied something I call the snap test, which is if you could... Snap your fingers, 
overnight and the company you're looking at or the industry you're looking at disappeared? Would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Now, probably someone would notice in every case if, like Thanos from Avenger End Wars, you snapped your fingers and an entire company or industry disappeared. But how many people would really care? I don't think a lot of people would miss their cable company very much. I'm not sure a lot of people would care. But if you snapped your fingers and Tesla disappeared, a lot of people would notice and a lot of people would care. So that's the snap test. And that helps me stay focused on making sure we're looking at the important emerging industries and companies. In conclusion on this one, if there were only one trait that I could be guided by with all my investing of the six we're covering today, this would be the one. I kind of lead with it because I think it's the most important. You are fishing in a stocked pond if you just focus your investing on these companies. And the remarkable thing about that stocked pond is that not many other people are fishing there, which is part of the reason it's magical and it works. Why aren't people fishing there? What is the what is the conventional wisdom counter to this one? I think for a lot of people, they think buy low, sell high. Uh, they think they have to find this obscure um, cryptocurrency or penny stock that no one else knows about, and it's hidden, and they've found it, and it's going to go to the moon. Well, those things rarely ever do go to the moon. Uh, once in a blue moon, they might. But I prefer to stay focused on the great companies. And again, ironically, since a lot of them look overvalued, Oh, wait, am I stealing from a future trait? Since a lot of them look overvalued, people tend to think, well, I wouldn't buy that one now. It's already done so well. And they forget, in conclusion, that most of these important emerging industries are innovation driven. And so the company that's already the top dog is probably going to keep innovating. But because you can't see that, because you're kind of taking it on faith, a lot of people are not willing to go fish in that risky looking pond. Ironically, right? It's the it's the the biggest stable companies that are like, eh, I don't want to go there. <laughs> it is, and especially in context of these other five traits we're going to cover. When you put those all together, you end up understanding why a lot of people never do buy the best companies of their time. All right, let's move on to your next trait. Trait number two is a sustainable competitive advantage. Now, that can be measured many different ways. Sometimes patent protection, if you're thinking about pharmaceutical companies that come up with a, a great drug and then are protected for 20 years or so for what they've invented. But I also think about just having the visionary, having the smartest people in the room. That's a great sustainable competitive advantage. You know, Mark Zuckerberg started our company, not your social media company, out of his Harvard dorm room. So I'm going to stick with Zuck. Now, I realize a lot of people are not big fans these days of Facebook, in part because it's gotten so big. And that means it's been an incredible investment uh, from the outset, or even from its being a public company. But that sustainable competitive advantage is so important because we're investing for at least three years, if not three decades. So in a world that's gone trading mad, where most mutual funds don't own on December 31st the stocks they had at the start of the year on January 1st. 70 to 100% of those positions have changed. You and I can break the rules by staying focused on the long term, playing the long game, the only game that counts for me. And therefore, sustainable competitive advantage is so important. What is a company that really exemplifies this for you? So many. So many of the companies that I have invested in. All of the companies we're going to be talking about today through these six traits are companies that have risen generally 10 times or more 
for me, so I like to really learn from my winners, not learn too well from our losers. That's another way to break the rules, by the way. So many people think they should study what what lost for them. They should look at all the downsides of their life and learn lessons. I like to look as a fool, capital F, I like to look at all the upsides and what's working, and let's build from there. So I can pull dozens of stocks to illustrate this, but how about Etsy? Etsy is a great example of a sustainable competitive advantage. You know, you'd think, how could Etsy possibly survive in an Amazon-led world? And yet, it is flourishing because it's Amazon-proof in a lot of ways. On Amazon, you can buy something that anyone else can buy on Amazon. And I love Amazon for that reason. On Etsy, you can buy something that you can't find anywhere else but Etsy. And that is a sustainable competitive advantage. We'll probably get into this more later in, in your future trait, but how do you tell if a leader is is truly visionary but also strategic and smart about it, right? Like, because I could argue the founder of WeWork was pretty visionary, but then that ended up just collapsing. So how how do you kind of evaluate vision? Yeah, first of all, I think Ty always goes to believing in the vision of people who've dreamed it and built it. Dream it build it. That is the story of business. And that is why so many jobs are created and so much innovation, especially in the US, has happened because somebody had a dream. So even the founder of WeWork, a stock that I would never have bought if it was public, maybe these days it's worth looking at if and when it does come public, it's changed some. But even that company, you have to respect the scale that was achieved. There was a great idea there. It wasn't a great business model. He might have gone a little crazy, but you know what? I'm also willing to lose and be wrong. And that's also important here. But to answer the question, I think that visionaries um, are usually identifiable uh, because they have started with the seed of something. And think about all that it takes to bring them to become public companies one day. You had to find real customers with a real product or service that beat a lot of competition. And you created forward momentum. You probably had a culture, I hope, that people loved to be part of as employees or as consumers. And so, I think that these are often great signs of the visionaries of our time. And usually, these are founder-led companies. Usually, we recognize the names of the person who started this or that company, as opposed to, sorry to bash cable companies again, but you know, Comcast or Spectrum these days. Who's even running that? Who's behind it? Who owns shares? At, at this point, they're often big institutional-led companies that don't have an evident visionary still working within that business. We're actually in the process of uh, getting rid of Comcast, so we're we're trying. We're hoping this five G works out for us. So that's, that's. I mean, I still like my FiOS, but I'm not saying I'm a huge fan of Verizon. Yeah, yeah, right. Like you're not going to go buy a Verizon T-shirt and be real proud to, to, to be a that's Verizon. That's right. And, and I also want to say, you know, Verizon employs hundreds of thousands of people. It is a very important company today, but that doesn't mean you and I have to invest in it. And I like to focus my investing on the real up-and-comers, right? Not the not the rule makers, if you will. I love the rule breakers who come along and disrupt the rule makers. All right, let's move on to your next trait of a rule breaker stock. All right, trait number three. This is the first time that we really hit one that is about the stock, not the company, and that's pretty controversial, which is in part, I think, why it works. Trait number three is that the stock have strong past price appreciation. Now, you think, again, in a world where so many people hear buy low, sell high, four of the most harmful words ever invented to misguide generations of 
mom and pop investors, individual investors like me, you'd think that you would never want to find a stock with strong past price appreciation. Why would you want to find something that's already up? Before I picked Amazon, it had doubled in the six weeks leading up to me picking Amazon. That was rather painful at the time. I was researching it, I was writing it up, and the stock doubled. And yet, it's done pretty well since. And so I started to realize with older eyes, looking backward, that that was actually a great sign, a signal that we should pay attention to. Because when a stock is doing really well, it tells you two great things. First of all, it tells you the market recognizes what's happening. You're not sitting there hoping that somebody will finally discover or think that the stock that you own is a great company. It's already quite evident to a lot of people that it's going up. And the second thing that it tells you is the company's probably operating pretty effectively. Uh, They're going through one quarterly earnings report after another where people might want to bash them or sell off their stock after hours because they didn't quite hit their numbers. If a stock is consistently winning, that is an excellent sign. And it has you, instead of buying low, selling high, It has you buying high and trying not to sell, which is a much more successful approach to investing, and that is rule breaker investing. This one I feel very strongly because it's so easy to think, I already missed it. I already missed the boat on Amazon. I already missed the boat. Like when I started at The Motley Fool, even 10 years ago, I had these same feelings of, I already missed the boat on Amazon. Netflix, it's already, I've already missed my shot. I'll just look around for something else. But, um, of course, if I had, and, and I did sometimes, uh, invest in these stocks, I would have still done very well in the last 10 years. But at the time, I was like, oh, nope, nope. I had to, I had to kind of just believe that it still had room to grow. This is one that personally I had to learn to break the rule on. And I'm glad that you have, Allison. I truly believe that most human beings, even those who love the stock market, still don't get this. And that leaves all the other human beings who haven't even understood the stock market yet. So most people would never think that this would work, which is why it is rule breaker investing. You know, Amazon looked overvalued in 1997, in 2002, 2007, 2012, 2017. People will still be saying it's overpriced in 2022. As over 25 years, it was the best stock of our time. That is really instructive. But here's another quick example. How about Lululemon Athletica? This is a stock that I first recommended in 2010. It's up like nine or more times in value. At the time, it was trading at 53 times earnings, and people were saying, why would you overpay for yoga pants? I can get that much cheaper at X, Y, or Z, and it's up nine times in value. But at the time, it looked so overpriced, it had already done quite well as a public company, and that is a good sign. Yeah, that that provides a good segue to our next trait because I feel like Lululemon um, has had its ups and downs on this next trait. So I'll let I'll let you share with our listeners what it is. Trait number four is good management and smart backing, and it's about the people because after all, products and services change. The industry in which these companies work and their competitive sets will change over time. But what usually doesn't change is what is responsible for all of the success or failure. And I think it's you and me. It's our fellow humans. It's the management team. It's the venture capitalists backing these early emergent companies. It is about the people. And I mentioned earlier the importance of a sustainable competitive advantage. When you can have a founder who owns a lot of stock, it means a lot to him or her to actually 
own that company probably for their whole lives, that's a great sign that not only do you have a sustainable competitive advantage, but you've probably found good management and smart backing. So, in a world where so many people think the way to figure out the stock market is numerical, it's about statistics, it's algorithms, it's big machines trading against each other, even as we're speaking right now. And how could I, as a little investor, possibly compete against this? Turns out you have a much bigger advantage because most of those machines don't think about the people at all. They're looking for zigs and zags on stock charts. They're just hoping the next earnings report pops the stock. You and I are invested, though, in the people, and we're looking somebody like Jensen Huang right in the eye, one of the more underrated CEOs of our time, the founder and CEO of NVIDIA, which has been a monster stock winner for us in Motley Fool Stock Advisor, or Activision Blizzard's Bobby Kotick, who basically bought into Activision Blizzard when it was nearly bankrupt and has brought the company into prominence as one of the great video game companies of our time. It's about the people. This um, this one reminds me of Buffett's quote about investing in companies that are so great, even an idiot could run them because eventually an idiot will or something like that. I'm paraphrasing. I'm butchering the quote. Um, it reminds me of that quote because, well, if I can get a company that actually is so awesome, but then actually have great management, I mean, that's exponential potential there to, to be an awesome stock. Yeah. And the key with management is it usually stays in place. Uh, at bigger companies, let's just go ahead and bash, I don't know, Comcast Spectrum. We'll, we'll let's, a new, let's just pull a, a new cable company. <laughs> let's have Comcast Spectrum and Verizon all merge into Megacorp, your cable company. Usually, the person who rises to become CEO of that has worked his or her entire career to finally get to that point, let's say in their early 60s, and they're imagining a big pay package, and they're probably going to be there for how many years? I don't know, maybe three? They'll retire at 65, and somebody else will come on for his or her three- or four-year run, and yet you and I can be invested in Jensen Wong for three decades or more. And so, yes, good management, smart backing, these things endure, and that's why we want to be invested in them. All right, let's move on to our fifth trait of a rule breaker stock. David? Trait number five is strong consumer appeal. We're talking here about brands. Generally, a strong consumer brand, if possible, but even companies that sell to other companies, so-called business-to-business businesses can have good brands. Ultimately, the brand is a promise that you make to your customers that you need to fulfill on every day. It's really hard to do, especially at scale. When you think about a company like Apple and think about how that brand has been created over the course of decades. Apple today is the number one brand in the world by most surveys, and it's been a wonderful long-term holding for so many Motley Fool members and a huge winner for Motley Fool stock advisors. So it's so instructive to me that the world's number one brand has also been one of the world's best stocks, and the world's number one brand is also the largest market capitalization. It's achieved the greatest size of all public companies worldwide. I hope all of us are studying and learning from that. But it doesn't just have to be the biggest brands. Here's a little brand that I loved back in the day, Marvel. And Marvel, owned these days by another great brand, Disney. But stay focused on Marvel for a sec. Marvel had a whole fan base when it emerged uh, out of near bankruptcy as a successful public company that was transitioning from comic books onto the silver screen. 
And that first Spider-Man movie, a lot of people said, that's a fad. These whole Spider-Man movies, these superhero movies don't have staying power. This is not a thing. Don't you remember Michael Keaton as Batman back in the 90s or 80s or whatever it was? That's not sustainable. And yet, as it turns out, Marvel has a great brand. Yep, Marvel, greater than sign DC, sorry. And Marvel was and is a great brand. Now, today, as I mentioned, Disney bought them out. So we Marvel shareholders back in the day today are Disney shareholders. But guess what? We just slid from one great brand to another. Trade number five, we have to look at the brands and ask, what are the best known companies? What are the best loved brands in the world? So many of our best stocks are those companies. I'm reminded here of the original root, the Latin root for the word invest. It's a beautiful word, and I'm glad you're here learning it from us if you didn't already know. The word is investiri. Investiri is Latin for to put on the clothes of, to wear the clothes. If you know a phrase like priestly vestments, well, it's the same root, invest and vestments. It's to put on the clothes. And my mental picture has always been sports fans because they go to the games and what do they do? They wear the jerseys. They've got their favorite player's number or name on their back. And whether their team wins or loses that day, whether their team has a good season or not, and there will be ups and downs, they're going to keep that jersey on. And that is exactly the same mental model that you and I should have if we want to break the rules and beat Wall Street. We should stay focused on keeping the clothes on. You should love your stock, just like you love your home teams. You should be making your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. Again, why is this breaking the rules when it seems like common sense? Well, as a wise man once said, common sense ain't actually that common. And most people think that they need to jump in and jump out, driven by phrases like buy low, sell high. The third word right away has them thinking about when they should sell. And we've been much more successful when we remember the original Latin root for the word investiri, put on the clothes. Yeah, be proud of the companies that you invest in, right? Then you're more likely to hold on to them. Then you're more likely to be excited when they do well. When you're not yeah. just financially invested, but you're like, it's it's more a reflection of you and how you want the world to be. Hell yeah. And as a friend of mine was recently reminding me, since we're all so busy in life and people ask us to do this thing or that thing, and there are so many choices we have to make, especially as adults, my friend said, you know, if it's not a hell yeah, it's a hell no. And so sometimes I like to throw the hell yeah out there to remember, let's stay focused on the things that we really are most passionate about, and let's stay focused on the, the hell yeah companies too. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to our final trait. Trait number six, the secret sauce of rule breaker investing, especially in light of the other five. Trait number six is that the stock be widely perceived as overvalued, uh, especially by the financial media. Now, for new investors in particular, this one seems crazy, which, by the way, is why it works. This one seems crazy because you would think if on the front cover of the Wall Street Journal or the Newsweekly Barons or on CNBC, if they're saying this stock is so overvalued, you would think, well, that's not the fishing pond I'm going to be fishing in, the overvalued stocks. But here's the beauty of why this is the secret sauce for rule breaker investing. Because to review, if you can find the top dog and first mover in an important emerging industry with a sustainable competitive advantage, 
strong past price appreciation, good management and smart backing, and strong consumer appeal. And everybody thinks that stock is so overvalued, you are onto something special because, yeah, it probably does look overvalued in the very near term, but we're not playing the near term game. And if everybody thinks something is overvalued, they're on the sidelines. And so they're like, I would never buy Amazon. I would never buy Netflix. Do you realize that Netflix is mailing people DVDs? This is back in the day. Blockbuster's going to crush Netflix. I could just drop off the movie at my local Blockbuster. People are going to think it's overvalued. But as these companies go out and execute and win, all of those skeptics who stayed out of the stock one by one will all of a sudden have their Amazon Prime subscription. And then a couple of years later, they'll be like, you know what? I am going to buy. I am going to buy Amazon stock. You know, Warren Buffett just said a few years ago, one of his great regrets was he never bought Amazon. Well, we've owned it for almost 25 years now because so many people thought it was overvalued all the way through. So as those skeptics convert not just to believers, but to shareholders, that's what drives the great walls of worry, which visually describe the ascent of these stock prices over time as skeptics become not just believers, but shareholders. Yeah, I can't help, not to keep harping on Amazon here, not harping, but not to keep using Amazon as the example here, but it is May of 1999 that Barron's ran that famous Amazon.bomb cover. And at the time, you know, they were saying that Amazon was worth a remarkable $36 billion. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what Amazon is worth today off the top of my head, but I have a feeling it's more than $36 billion. And that was in 1999 that the media was saying, nah, it's over. It's done. Well, Amazon is worth $1.7 trillion today, so that's a much, a much bigger. Uh, these are all big numbers, but that is a huge, <laughs> huge win from $36 billion. It is worth pointing out in Barron's favor that within a couple of years, Amazon would get torched. But it wasn't Amazon's fault. The entire stock market and frankly, the World Trade Center all came down. That was a horrible time. And a lot of the weak hands, a lot of the second and third movers among the dot bombs back then didn't survive that era. Amazon sure did. And so did some other great companies that we look back on as leaders today. And so I think about that a lot. I think it's important to remember that when companies get called out on the cover of Barron's as overvalued, Barron's might even be right in the near term, and yet they're writing for near-term thinkers and near-term actors. That's what drives most of the financial media and even more of the trading that happens every day on the stock market. So simply by playing the ungame, by breaking the rules of how convention works here, we can win wildly. All right, David. Well, that covers it for the six traits of a rule breaker stock. But of course, it takes more than just identifying a great stock to be a successful investor, which is why next week, I believe you'll be joining us to talk about your six habits of a rule breaker investor. And so talking about what you as an investor need to do with your actions when you find these great stocks, when you identify these rule breaker stocks. Does that sound good? It sounds great, Allison, because it's one thing to find these great companies, but if you don't have the right mindset and the right habits, then you might not do well with them. And so it's so important to me not just to tell you six traits of rule breaker stocks, but the six habits you need to develop if you want to be a rule breaker investor. And by the way, not everybody has to. If what we just covered sounds insane to you, 
good news. There are other approaches to prospering with the stock market. Companies that pay dividends, et cetera. There are lots of ways to beat the market. You just asked me on to describe mine. And it's worked pretty well for you. So, you know. David, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we'll see you here next week. Full on. Well, before we go, we should probably have a little bit of a disclaimer, a little bit of legalese. As always, The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks we talked about on the show. Don't buy and sell stocks based solely on what you heard here. Although David Gardner is pretty good at it, but whatever. All right. Our email is answers at fool.com. The show is edited rule-breakingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.